Hello and welcome back to part two of our Ask podcast session. And I think Mr. Tell has recovered from part one after his great cliffhanger. And I think we are all ready, chomping at the bit, uh, ready for this next question, which I know Matthew has eagerly got on his lips. <laughs> Ask us anything. Ask us anything. Anything. Uh, okay. Is Hyde just an analogy for Jekyll's weakness, as in the original manuscript of Jekyll and Hyde, which was torn up and thrown in the fire by his wife, or um, looking for evidence perhaps regarding the reveal to Lanyon of Jekyll, um, sort of she seems shining through Hyde when he sort of goads him um, into watching, and also of the potential criminal, criminal network that you mentioned that Hyde establishes, um, which surely would have demanded pre-existing contacts and associates. Yeah, this is in that video I made on perceptive ideas. The more I've taught Jekyll and Hyde, the more I think that, that Stevenson's hinting that Jekyll's version of events in Chapter 10 is not the only story here, yep. that there are strange questions left unanswered about, particularly about the murder of Carew and whether Hyde and Carew had more of a relationship than the maid who's narrating that. It's the maid's perspective. Mm. I don't think the maid realises what that interaction actually is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The way Jekyll describes in Chapter 10, there are certain bits in Chapter 10 that I think are really useful. If, you, if you're asked about Jekyll and you want to be slightly more critical of him as an unreliable narrator. He talks about the vicarious pleasure he takes in watching the things that Hyde does, watching the things that, yeah, the crimes that Hyde commits. That's psychologically very, very strange and, and does make you wonder about whether it is so much of a boundary. They have memory in common. That's a quote from chapter 10. My two natures had memory in common. And that makes you think, OK, Jekyll understands everything that Hyde does, and yet he carries on turning into Hyde. And I, I think you're right. I think Jekyll is complicit in all of those crimes, even though grammatically he tries to distance himself. Mm. He, I cannot say I, and all of that. Although he does, though. He does, and he, he has this both ways in Chapter 10. Mm. So if you only reread one chapter, mm. make it 10. I know it's the longest and most difficult, but every time I reread it, every page has another couple of quotations where mm. I think, oh... I could really look at Jekyll as unreliable. I think the only reason he writes that letter is to try and salvage his reputation. Mm. Um, and yeah, that's there's so many hidden depths in it that a really great perceptive grade eight, grade nine essay could explore. Mm. And useful perhaps, we don't know. Look, perhaps there's a reading of this that's this. Perhaps Stevenson's hinting at this. You could do really interesting stuff. I think in the exam, probably the easiest thing to do is to kind of go Jekyll good, Hyde bad, you know. Um, but I think it's it's much easier um, if you really look in chapter ten, as you were mentioning, that the more dark, the more darker side of Jekyll and even the lighter side of Hyde being sort of manipulative. And of course, Hyde in in chapter eight, he both takes his own life, which Jekyll doesn't think that he'll do, mm. and he doesn't destroy the will that has now been renamed to benefit Utterson. Mm. And I think that shows that even Hyde has grown to see Utterson as a fundamentally decent figure. Mm. And so there's more humanity in Hyde than people think. Mm. And I think there's more criminality in Jekyll. in Jekyll than people think. The very fact that he's weeping when the women are along his side. Like he's a, he's a man yeah. who has emotions, that he has debts. He's yeah. not... It's so reductive to say, oh, he's a psychopath. I just think that's such an oversimplification. Yeah, or an animal or a devil. Yeah, or an animal or a devil and all these things about him being deformed and so on. I think so many of the characters, but also so many of the people that we've been analysing, just miss the point. They're missing the depths of both of those characters and the culpability. And I just think there's some really interesting parallels with Frankenstein. And, you know, and did we all study that in year nine? Yes. 
Yeah. So I just think there's so many parallels between Frankenstein and his lack of self-awareness, his inability yeah. to take responsibility for what is clearly his fault. It's that same kind of um, idea that comes through, which is why I think they're really worth studying side by side. But Frankenstein does actually try sort of atone for his sins and does try find the monster and kill it. Whereas in this, well, you may you may think differently, uh, but I think oh, I think to some extent he does feel some guilt for this. But you think you were arguing the other day that Jekyll never really, no, uh, never really atones yeah. and never really repents for what he's done and just feels just doesn't want to die. <laughs> doesn't doesn't want to die as all humans don't and sort of uh, never really considers what he did was wrong. That's fair, but I, I mean I have to say if I had to pick the character I most despise, Victor Frankenstein, definitely. Do you? He's I'd, just an awful. I think man. of all the characters, my least favourite is Gerald. Oh, oh Gerald, Gerald debate. Let's have a Gerald debate. Gerald that has to be done. Gerald is the worst. Nice. That was a beautiful segue, so wasn't it? Right. That was that was great. Only how do you feel about Gerald? I think I completely agree. I despise <laughs> his character. Yeah. Absolutely. The um, just ah, oh, the misogyny. It's yeah. oh my goodness. Right. Okay. Let me collect my thoughts for a second. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Whew. <laughs> it worked out. All right. All, out. <laughs> all right. So I think um, he's a misogynist pig that was, you know, maybe like never told no. And I think he's, I think he doesn't, he can't accept no, maybe. Or, and he thinks that no matter what, he can always get his own way. And I think that sort of attitude in life, I think I despise that the most about him. And I think out of all the characters we've studied, definitely Gerald is up there on, I would say, my hit list. So. <laughs> that links really nicely to your questions, because obviously I've sneaked a peek at your questions. Yeah. And you said, like, what's the point of Gerald? And I think that entitlement point is so important. Yeah. He is a cut above. You know, Lady Croft is his mum. He's, you know, born with a silver spoon in his mouth. As you say, he gets absolutely everything he wants. No one's ever said no to him. It does not occur to him not to exploit um, Eva, Daisy, whatever we're calling her at this point, in her time of need, I absolutely, I'm, I'm on board with that. He's also a bit of an outsider as well. Mm. I think if they made the the Burlings all upper class instead of being middle class, uh, upper middle class, sorry, um, they wouldn't be as relatable, and you'd sort of feel an awe of this very rich family. Mm. But in this sense, they're a little bit more relatable for the audiences at the time, and they could see themselves, as, they, they could see the hypocrites in them as mm. well, because. Um, although they claim to value class, they themselves are trying to rise above their um, status. And Gerald being the sort of outside force um, of the uh, play, it shows the sort of um, upper class that they sort of, that Priestley hated, um, yes. but not Mr. I think that's fairly evident. Not the Burlings, though. No, yeah. that's interesting. James, Simon, Gerald? Uh, well... I'm, my views aren't as extreme as Ollie's. Correct. No, but I think he is most to blame if you look at the play through it, the lens of the morality play. He does represent like two of the seven deadly sins as opposed to the usual one of mm. most characters. And Priestley. Which you, you, which do you lost and pride? Yeah. Maybe greed, perhaps. Oh, you could yeah. argue. Just well, like, the way he won. <laughs> yeah. Abuse of power, really. Yeah. yeah. It's just everything. No. Uh, the way Priestley's, like, made his play, I guess he was appealing to women at the time, as you said in class, that they didn't have much power. So 
it could be a propaganda play in which Gerald is like the main abuser, I guess. There's a lovely point you can make, I think, about Gerald's presence in the palace bar. Mm. When he he yeah. doesn't his inter- Gerald is an unreliable narrator of his yeah, own story, yeah, yeah. right? He he doesn't give the proper go, t- take it on, James. What no, do you think? Uh, well, I mean, I think just because of the facts, like if you just look at it, this is a man who's supposed to be respectable from the son of the Croft hanging out when that he's around older men. I think that's the key point. He's quite young himself. Was he like mid twenties? I think he's meant to be thirty, but yeah, thirty. Uh, he's like Sheila's age, and he's hanging around this like, almost ahead of his time, kind of like filling that kind of stereotype at a younger age than normal and i think it's important to look at the timeline because if you look at it all the other characters they interact with eva smith daisy renton for like a much small smaller time whilst gerald he had a sustained almost relationship with eva smith for like how long the whole summer mm. That's a good yeah. every yeah. other every other person was there for like and a shorter interaction, shall we say? It yeah. was like just a firing, an entanglement. But it, it, Gerald has that choice, and he must have gone home. He, he saw he, he was with Sheila, and still continued to see Eva Smith. So I feel like that taking that into account is just he had a lot more responsibility. That's a really, that's he, a really perceptive that. point. Yeah, I haven't thought about that yeah, before. You know, point. Sheila's mistake, a mistake if you like, but is is a spur of the moment yeah. thing. Gerald, that's a long time to think about that mm. and be very deliberate. Yeah. And to deliberately bring it to the house. Mm. Have that, you know, to stall her and then just to get rid of her when flat available. He's also like a chameleon, if you will. And like James was like yes. hinting to it. And he's hanging out with all the people with Mr. Burling. He plays that role of the ideal son-in-law. Yeah. And with Eric, he kind of like jousts around like their brothers and then yeah. with Sheila. He pretends to be like a good fiance, so he's like he's not he just plays with like an all round facade of everything. It's as if becoming a uh the, the sort of stereotypical gentleman of the time de ages him and makes him unlike Eric, who to some extent That was gonna be my next question. Who, to some extent, yeah. although he does abuse power, one could argue that he uh uh you're thinking, how can I put this yeah, I diplomatically? Like, yeah. <laughs> One who could argue that he uh, repents at the end mm. um, and goes to the socialist side, although that could be contested. Well, er- Eric does. Yeah. Eric, despite mm. the fact that he is drunk at the end. What do we think? Eric, as bad as well, Gerald, not quite as no. bad as Gerald. Why? I would say he's half as bad. He doesn't seem really comfortable with his own family as well. In his introduction, he's half half assertive, half shy. Like, he doesn't want to be with his own family, which just shows, like, he he himself thinks he's not fit for upper class. Maybe because, like, he doesn't believe in those views, or maybe he's just intimidated by everyone else. Yeah. By the end, there's a sense that he has, perhaps. Eric also admits his crimes a lot more as well than Gerald. Gerald, I mean, we've discussed Gerald's clearly hiding some things from the inspector. The inspector doesn't sort of point it out, but he, it's pretty obvious that they're there because there's a whole huge time gap, as James was mentioning, that anything could have happened, really. Um, compared to Eric, who's very blunt at what he did, as sort of chap uh, easily turned nasty, it's very obvious what he's talking about compared to Gerald, who's very mysterious. Uh, looking at Sheila. Yeah. Um, I just, someone was talking about her. Um, 
I, again, a very easy sort of mistake to make is uh, sort of Sheila naive and then um, Sheila still naive at the end as a woman. Um, but and she grows over time. But it's the fact that I think she recognizes sort of Gerald's Gerald's character much more at the end with the ring. Um, the fact that she still doesn't take it. Um, yeah, I mean, he says, "What about this ring?" It's all it's yes, it's all awful. He, he, I'm paraphrasing. You you need to get the exact quotation, but he says something like, <laughs> "Everything's all right now." Yeah. So what yes. about this? Mm. And you think, "Oh wow." She, she doesn't just submit. He deserves um, the phone to ring. Good for yeah. Which you would expect sort of a <laughs> yeah. woman of the time to do. I think people are quite stereotypical in the way that they write about Sheila, and I think they miss the nuances of Sheila in the play. Um, don't make that mistake a lot of students will make of saying uh, she shows how much she's changed and uh, and, and, and her... Emp uh, well, the inspector's influence when she says they're not just cheap labour, they're people. Mm. She says that really early. Yeah. She says that before she's even confessed mm. to what she's done. Mm. So it shows that she has the, the raw material of yeah. empathy and being an empathetic person. I think with Sheila, it's almost like a battle's going on for her soul where the figure that she would become is her mother. Mm. And this is where in Millwood's she complains exactly like her mother would mm. complain. She even uses the word impertinent, which is the Mrs. Burling word. And it's a bit like the inspector gives her a rival role model. Mm. People need role models. And I think the question is, who is it? A lot of people, it's, it's going to be their family. It's going to be their parents, unless somebody else shows them another model of what it might be to be in society. And I think that's what the inspector does. You could say that he manipulates them too, but he is a a possible role model for a different future. And I think that's what captures Sheila. I would, I would definitely argue role model. Um, I think Priestley uh, sort of portrays, especially from a religious sense, I think Priestley mm. portrays the inspector as sort of Christ-like figure, um, offering redemption for um, the Verlings. And mm. obviously Sheila is the kind of the only one who accepts it. Can I stare at very, very briefly? Yes. In the direction. Very, very Creative writing, transactional writing, whatever you want to call it, persuasive writing. What do we think about it? What are our top tips? What are our, what are our fears, questions, feelings? Any of the above, really. I've got a question then. Um, what's the biggest way? Because obviously there's a wide variety of examiners out there and it's all like perspectives with creative writing. What's the biggest way and what's one tip to trying to appeal to every examiner no matter who well, they are well i think structure is the most important thing and i think that everybody thinks about openings but they sometimes the quality of what people write so frequently goes down after that opening but i think it's so vital that you really think of a plan mr lowe is amazing yeah, on this see all things mr lowe for all things creative writing he Agreed. is the you know the champion on this yeah but you know that sense of okay right fine i've done you know some really great setting exploration i've looked at some light and shadow imagery i've created my eeriness or whatever it is i'm going for okay right i'm going to have a flashback this is going to give me a chance to look at a key moment insight into our character and then we're into the kind of present day and keep it simple. You know, don't have a million different events. How many different times have we said this? But we, we don't want gunfights, drugs, knives, whatever. It is, you're not going to do it well, I'm afraid. You are not, you know, Robert Muchmore, who actually I don't think does it well either. But there we go. He can sue me if he likes. That's fine. <laughs> um, but really just keep it simple. Think about the psychology of the character. Don't overcomplicate it. Think about structure. And I think you'll come good. That would be my, my big thing. 
and have been. For yeah, I think it's don't just describe and don't just tell a story. The one thing you have to do in that paper one, question five, but also paper two, question five, is show that you're deliberately crafting with yep. language, that you're writing to have an effect. Mm. A bit like if you were directing a film, for some people that have not quite got this yet, perhaps it's the equivalent of thinking about if you were a filmmaker, you don't just put the camera anywhere mm. to show someone running about. You do art artistic things to create meaning, like go really close on a character's face. You have a, you start with an image of a, an object and then pull the camera back to show why that object's important in the scene. Mm. You know, you do a close-up on the clock to show time passing. And you've got to do the same kind of creative decisions mm. in writing. That's what makes writing creative. So don't just use language functionally to tell me about someone's life and what happened to them that day. Use language artistically mm. to create extra layers of meaning, foreground things, uh, and be, be a little bit more um, complex, interesting, imaginative. There we are. Fantastic questions. I wish we could have had more time, but, you know, we really have raced through and I think we've had a fantastic time and we hope you guys listening have had a lovely time too. Of course, share this with anybody you can possibly think of. You know, subscribe to us on YouTube. I know many of you have already. Thank you for that. As usual, I will be sending this. I'll be throwing this out all over the place and all the bulletins and all the emails. I'll have a little question for you. Reply to it. Get yourself a house point. And actually, I have a supply of chocolate eggs at the moment. So if you can answer one of our questions correctly, you can also have a chocolate egg if that appeals to you. Thomas is looking from the production thinking, oh, I'm going to get my hands on one of those chocolate eggs. And of course, <laughs> I need to say thank you to our fantastic production team who are always wonderful. Yes. We have got Thomas of Year 11 at the helm today doing a fantastic job but thank you also Amazing. to tom in year 13 i'm in year 13 etc for your fantastic support thanks to all our listeners thank you for all your feedback thank you for getting involved and of course thank you to our fantastic panelists matthew james sarvang and ollie who were brilliant today so thoughtful and just you know just you know emulate these guys this is exactly what we want this kind of level of thought this kind of level of interaction with the text for me i am very pleased anything to add sir that i've missed just to say that if you're a year 11 listening to this and the exams are coming up or maybe you're listening to this the night before or something, be confident, mm. believe in yourself, be as interesting as you can and sound as interested as you can about what you're writing about and you'll do brilliant. What a way to end. Thank you for being with us on the Ask podcast. We hope we will be back with you again very soon. Goodbye.